we, we may not be thousands here, but we want to be on the cutting edge of doing what God wants us to do. So, you know, this is one of those ways that you could, with very, very, very simple use of something you're probably doing every day, uh, can minister to other people. And I want to encourage you to do it. You know, sometimes I think we think wrongly about this area of, of giving because in, in Scripture we have really three basic areas. One is our time. In other words, we can give of our time. Maybe somebody just needs some help. We can give of our talents. In other words, the gifts that God's given us. And we can give of our treasure, the things that we possess or own. You could look at that as money and possessions, all those kind of things. And, and so God would have us give of all of those areas. And so it's a way for us to really do what God calls us to do, which is to be a blessing to the world. The, the church was supposed to and should be a blessing to the whole world. And so who knows? This takes off, and all of a sudden, because uh, it has an unashamed Christian message, you know, wouldn't it be cool if non-Christians were logging on there and going, you know what, hey, this guy who loves Jesus just gave me a bunch of baby clothes or a car seat. Or, or for those of you who right now are wondering how you're going to get that Nordic track stair climber that you desperately need. Um, you never know. You don't know what God's going to do. And so I want to encourage you, use the resources God's given you. Think a little bit out of the box. It's that time in our country's history. I think it does us some good to not be looking to the same solutions to solve problems that haven't been solved yet. So this is a good way to do that. If you turn this morning in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin chapter 3 here. And I want to remind you again that these books that we're in now are commonly called the pastoral epistles, and we certainly now come to that part that is the most pastoral of, of all of the, what we will see in the next uh, couple of months. But again, I want to remind you that anything that's given as an instruction to a specific group of people is also an instruction to all of us. And so, though these qualifications are for the office of bishop, or really, in the modern sense, pastor, elder, leader in the church, as I've shared with you before, they are our instructions in the home. They, they are my instruction as a husband. They're my instruction as a father. They're my instruction in the workplace. The, this is how we should all live. In its proper context, yes. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is the passage that we so often use in pastor's conferences and when we're talking about the character that a pastor ought to have, the nature that a pastor ought to have. These are the passages we dig out. But let us not miss the message that it really is for all of us to be this way. It's not just for me to be this way before you. It is for you to be this way before your sons, your daughters, your wife, in the workplace, at school, in our community. If the church were to live these qualities and characteristics, God would have far fewer black eyes. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, we come, and Lord, we ask that you would just now impart these truths to us, Lord, through the studying of your word. And as we gaze upon it, Lord, we, we pray that we wouldn't pass it by because it simply pertains to the, the office of pastor. Lord, may I, may I be a better husband, Lord, more temperate. Lord, Father God, we just ask this morning that, that you would open up our eyes to understand these things. Lord, to see what you'd have us to see to know what you'd have us to know. Lord, would you bless us as we 
Now study your word. We give this time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in 1 Timothy 3, for this is a faithful saying, it begins. And so he's reminding us, again, when you see those types of statements, it's indicating that it was widely known, and it was also something that was widely accepted. It was a faithful saying. This is how we ought to be looking at church leadership, to be certain. And when we're looking for those who would be candidates in this church to uh, be a pastor, to be a leader in some capacity, these are the things that we look for. I want to be very careful, because some people take this list and it becomes a list of disqualification. Would you please not look at it that way? That is not what Paul was writing to Timothy about. It doesn't mean if there's a failure in any one of these areas, that person is automatically disqualified from ever serving in any capacity. That's not the intent of the passage. It isn't what it says, not in the original language, nor is it what it says if you read it in plain English. It is absolutely a very high standard, and it absolutely is that a pastor should keep that very high standard. But it's not to be used as a baseball bat, because I can guarantee you, if you took this passage at its face value, applied it to virtually anyone's life, there are very few people on this planet that, in a sense of perfection, have ever kept this list. It's a tough list, and it should be tough, because the calling on a pastor's life is high. It's a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, He desires a good work. In other words, it's a good thing to desire to be in leadership. I like to call it holy dissatisfaction with where you are now. It's a good thing to want to move up the ladder of spiritual success and usefulness to the Lord. But we must keep that in check with the giftings that we have, with the calling upon our lives, with the things that God's done, and we must not try and shoehorn people into positions that God has not called them to. In other words, it isn't just a job. When young pastors or candidates to be so come to me and they say, well, what do I need to do to become a pastor? The first thing I will tell them is you need to be faithful with little. You need to understand that I don't have a job. I have a calling on my life. I happen to be a professional minister of the gospel, if you want to look at it that way. But it's not a job. It's a calling. It isn't something that you simply learn. It is not something that you can go to school and simply do a certain amount of coursework and come out of it a pastor. That is not what happens. God creates that calling on a person's life endows that person with a certain amount of giftedness in areas that are applicable to the office of bishop or pastor, and then it's up to God to stimulate those gifts, cause them to come to pass, and for for them to be used. Now, having said that, that automatically means that not everybody's going to be a pastor. Amen? Uh, The church would be a very, very sorrowful place if we were all trying to out-pastor one another. It's a specific gift. But the basic calling to be better in Christ is upon all of us. We shouldn't be satisfied with spiritual mediocrity. And we certainly shouldn't shouldn't be satisfied with returning to the vomit with which we've already been delivered. 
It should be a calling upon our life that is ever-increasing in glory. We should be better each day as we walk with Jesus. We should be learning new things about His character and His nature. So the desire that's being expressed here is shown in the extreme, in the office of a pastor, but it should be in each of us. We should all be looking to be used in a greater way for the kingdom. We shouldn't be sitting around, well, you know, I'm perfectly content just where I am. If you're perfectly content, there, there's an underlying issue there, and so we're not really seeking to do more for the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I'd like to see God's kingdom actually come. In other words, the rapture of the church. I'd like to go home to be with Jesus if the Lord's done saving people's lives. The way that we do that is by being more in the kingdom, not less in the kingdom. Amen? So, so there should be, in a sense, a holy dissatisfaction with each of us. I want to grow in the knowledge and the grace of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to have a greater understanding of His Word. I want to have it applicationally more true in my life each day. And so as I do that, my endeavor is then to teach those things to you and to pass those things along so that as you see those things in your life, which can stand, which can stand improvement, which there are some, amen? I think each of us have areas of our lives where we should go, well, you know, I could do better there. Then we desire to grow. But here it is, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. You're going to see, uh, depending on how you count these things out and how you separate them, someplace between 13 and 16 different characteristics in this passage. And we need not belabor each of them. We could, and we could make a study on each one. We're not going to do that for our purposes here. But I want you to notice that when you link them all together, they are a very, 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 very tight spectrum of behavior. They, they are, a, in a sense, a, a confining force that relegates the office of pastor, bishop, which is the same word, overseer is the same word, to those who have dedicated themselves to being Christ-like. That's the issue. It's being Christ-like. And when you look at these things that are listed here, and how they are described, and you look at the things that a pastor should not be, because there's some of those too, amen? As we look at the things that we should not be, what we're really seeing is how to best portray Christ to the world. And so if that's the case, for each of us, these things matter. A bishop must then be blameless. I hate the fact that that's the first one. Because it really sets the stage for all of the rest, doesn't it? Because if I'm going to be blameless, guess who's being compared to here? This is the Lord. His Word. This is Christ-likeness. Blameless. In other words, the world should be able to look at my life, look at your life, but especially my life, and go, that's what it means to walk with Jesus. Now, I want to take the rest of this passage, and then we'll look at each of these things one by one. But as we read them together, would you understand that what's really being said here is you can't just jerk these out of context. They're meant to be impossibly linked together. They're meant to be very constraining for a pastor. 
They're, they're meant to be assembled in such a way that when I look at them, it keeps me very humble before God. I can stand some growth in even that area of my life. But I can tell you this, when I look at this list, it keeps me on my knees. Lord, have I been blameless today? Now look at the rest of this list. You must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride and then fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Yikes! If you had that on the application for some job that you were going after, there are not too many people going to apply for that one very successfully. It's meant to look impossible, family of God, quite frankly. I believe that to some degree it's very much like the law of the Old Testament. It says, here's the standard. And apart from being on your knees and apart from the grace of God and apart from the infilling of the Holy Spirit, this list is pretty near impossible. You look at it and you go, oh my. Hospitable. I don't know about you, but after the road being closed for a while, I'm not very hospitable. I, I, I get down there, I'm like, I don't really care. I don't want to see, you know, you, we all go through those things which tempt and test our own place on this planet, amen? So this list of qualifications, and by the way, if you were looking for someone good at anything, would this not be a good list for anything? I mean, think about it. If you were looking for an employee... Who wouldn't want that kind of employee? If you're looking for someone to do well in school, who wouldn't want someone like this? It really is a standard that each of us can look at and say, Lord, help me to, to fulfill that role. So if you were to call me to something greater still, I would be prepared. I'd be ready. I want to also remind you that these things do not happen without some effort and self-discipline. Because notice what's here is basically the whole world is set in contrast to our walks with the Lord. The world is set in contrast with our walks with the Lord. Because the world is greedy. The world is not sober-minded. The world is lovers of money. The world is full of drunks. You understand what I'm saying? This is in contrast to the world here. As Charles Spurgeon said in a book that we use as we're training pastors, lectures to my students, Follow no man further than he follows Christ. And that's really it. Follow no, don't follow me any further than I follow Christ. If I'm not following Christ in, in Jesus' precious name, do not follow me. If I'm not being Christ-like, don't imitate that behavior. We are to imitate Christ. As Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Be ye therefore imitators of Christ. Now prayerfully, your pastor can be imitated. 
Prayerfully, those in leadership can be imitated. Prayerfully, you could look at the life of that person who's in leadership and go, I want to be like that. That would be growth. I I have the privilege of being able to say that about Pastor Chuck. I've served with him for more than 20 years on his staff. And I can follow him. I can say, Lord, let me be like him. One day, I hope that I am like that. I, I can't imagine. With the, I get between 100 and 150 emails a day. A day. Yes, that's close to 1,000 a week. I respond to at least half of those. Can you imagine what it's like to be a pastor of pastors of pastors of 1,800 churches? I'm just one guy. I'd look at his email list and I'd go, delete all. (laughs) Not very hospitable, is it? Yeah, I mean, think about what you're thinking when you think about leadership in the church. It's difficult. It's hard. Your time isn't your own. You know, when I get home, I'm not like, well, I'm off duty. You know, I slide my card and... You know, if your life happens to fall apart when it's after hours, could you call me tomorrow? That doesn't work real well when you're in the hospital. It it doesn't work well when your children have just been in a car accident. It's not a job. It's a calling. And it's difficult. It requires self-discipline. It requires sacrifice. And so he begins... I want to share with you as we go through these one more time, mostly from the New International Version, because I think it helps us understand the intent in our modern language. For here is a trustworthy saying, verse 1 says, if anyone sets his heart, desire, sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a beautiful picture, really. Because if you set your heart on something, you're inclined to also apply all of your effort. Let me share with you, men. When you, if you're married and you're here, when you were dating your wife, did you not throw out all the stops because your heart's desire was on your wife? You spent money you didn't have. Uh, you actually shaved when you normally wouldn't. You know, you, you gave every bit of your heart to try and win the heart of that other person. That's the picture. To set your heart's desire on something is not just to give it kind of a try. It's to endeavor to give it everything you've got and to put your best foot forward. You know, it's not a wise idea on your first date to come, you know, dressed in a ragged T-shirt with grease all over your hands and pick up your date at the door and say, you know, I'd like to take you to a nice restaurant. You know, you're going to put your best foot forward. And in this passage, we find what your best foot forward looks like. How that life ought to stack up compared to the things of God. And here the word overseer, which is episcopus, is, is, it, it refers to elder, it refers to pastor, it's overseer, it's apostle. It's all of those same, all of those words that we would translate into English. It applies to every one of them. And so please don't divest this from its actual meaning. But it is leaders. 
It is those seeking that position, that office. And so when we think about it, I like the word apostle, actually, though we don't think of it in a modern context, context that way because the word apostle means one sent under authority with a message. As a pastor, I don't have my own message. I am sent under the authority of Almighty God with His message. I'm not to self-promote. I'm not here to build up some empire. I'm here to preach God's Word without compromise. And at times, guess what? That means I've got to bring a message y'all don't want to hear. I may have to say things to you that you don't like. I may have to confront sin in your life. You see, if my life isn't like Christ, I don't have any authority to confront anything in yours. If my life's a mess, what authority do I have to point out something in your life because it's not true in mine? It's one of the reasons so many of these things become a stain upon the church because when you look at the pastor, when you look at the leadership, when you look at the national leadership in the church, what do you find? You don't find men living this. You find men living with secret bank accounts and mistresses. You, you find whole ministries that have been evading taxes on a personal level. Family of God, I've been called to a standard that you should be able to emulate. You should be able to look at my taxes and find no fault. You should be able to look at my finances and find no fault. You should be able to look at my life, my children, my wife, my home, and find no fault. It's to be blameless. Tough calling. It's not fun living in a fishbowl, especially in a town the size of ours. And you drive through town, oh, there goes Pastor Jeff. I can't tell you how many times I drive past. I think every one of the CHP officers now go to the church. It's like like driving 29 miles an hour now instead of 30, just to be safe. I feel in bondage. No, it's the point. We're supposed to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. In every area of my life, I don't want to be ashamed to God. I don't want you to be ashamed of me, which would be akin of being ashamed of the things that God's doing. And that should be true of each of us, but it's especially true for me. I want God to be pleased. And I want you to be well-loved and cared for. And I want the example that we set whether it's myself or another pastor in this church or in children's ministry or the way Jerry does sound or how the church is kept, it should all have the fragrance of Christ. Every bit of it should speak His name. You see, to set your heart on something means that you're going to attain to that noble task at all cost. And that means you've got to die to self. It means when you pull out there and there's people in the middle of your driveway, you can't run them over. You just can't. You know, you have to kind of go, well, you know, honestly, the forest is that way about five or six miles. And God bless you. 
And you wrestle with God in the private and quiet of your own mind. Don't think that pastors don't wrestle in the private and the quiet of their own mind. But that's where it needs to happen. It should not be in public. I can tell you because I have some dear pastor friends and I that get together once or twice a year and we'll go someplace for a few days and just pour out our hearts to each other. Pastors wrestle. Pastors have issues too. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was ministering to a guy from Northern California, and you know he was just heartbroken. He, he had been thrown out of his own church. A handful of people in the church had, had built up a case against him in a couple of areas that, quite frankly, were not true. Their facts were not correct. And I remember ministering to him and, and just watching the the opportunity for the Lord to work in his life and, and for God to restore him. Pastors wrestle. Have a tough time. It goes on now in that great aspiration. And I want to remind you that the picture that we have of Jesus in Scripture is as a servant leader. Amen? It, it's not as, you know, me chief, you Indian. It, it, oh, Native American, excuse me. Indigenous people. No, it, it, it's not that at all. It's not that I'm way up here and you're way down here. It, it's that my God is way up here. And I want to get as close as I can. I want to do what I can to make sure that you know what he looks like and how he acts in this world. That's the calling upon my life. To try and give you as close a view to Jesus as I can get. Bearing in mind that this vessel is not perfect. But it's also not an excuse to do less than my best. Amen? Amen. You can say amen to that. Because you should. You should not accept less than godliness. And I'm not saying, you know, please do not stick, you know, notes to me in the tithe box saying, well, you stink at this. If you have something to say about how I'm living or how I'm acting, then I would appreciate you come to me. Do what Matthew 18 says. But you don't have to accept less than the best. Part of your calling is to also keep your pastor honest. Keep him accountable. It's one of the reasons that we have a board here in this church that I answer to. It's why we do those things. So if I show up out there with the hummer that I covet every once in a while, they'll say, no, you can't have that. You see, we need to set those standards. Those great aspirations must also understand the great responsibility. Verse 2, and now an overseer must be above reproach, the NIV says. It doesn't really say without, it says above. In other words, we have to rise above the circumstance or the situations. I need to be better than the things that come my way. I need to adjust my life to match God's standards, not the other way around. You see, so many people just settle for the best that they can do. I want to settle for the best that God has for me. And that requires effort on my part. And it requires effort on your part when you apply these things. He's the husband of but one wife, temperate. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And so I, I would draw your attention at this time that these 
same attributes are listed for elders, they're listed for deacons. We're going to see a little bit different spin next time. And so here this list begins. He must be blameless. It means that we must have a reputation that brings glory to the Lord. And we're going to find at the end that it is also a reputation that should go out into the world. In other words, not just here in the church, because that's a little easier to do, quite frankly. You know, you all are pretty tender-hearted towards me, and I can be kind of silly. And, and if I were to have some fault, I would pretty much guess that most of you would go, oh, yeah, it's just Jeff. But out in the world, it's actually more difficult because the world already hates us. The world's looking for some reason. People in the world don't understand. They, they don't know what it means to be a pastor. So they just simply look at the things that I would do and say. But we need to be blameless. I should have a reputation that, that my life is as it should be. It goes on to say the husband of one wife. And I would draw your attention that the, the context here indicates that the office of pastor belongs to men. And I believe that that is a very simple reasoning behind that. As I shared with you, it's not that women can't teach in the church, but the office of pastor belongs to men. And I believe it's principally based on the headship that God has established in the home. And the church is an extension of my home life. If I'm not living my life the way I ought to be living it, if I am not being Christ to my own family, I certainly have no business being here in this pulpit trying to be Christ to you. If when I go home, you find out that I'm not living these things in my own life. And so the example here is the husband of one wife. And people extrapolate this out to mean all kinds of things. Does that mean that you know necessarily a, a man must be married? No, that's not what it's saying. But if that man is married, it's one woman for life. That does also, and I'm going to be very blunt here, it does exclude those who have been divorced. The context clearly states that if someone's been divorced and they were the cause of that divorce, that that person would be excluded from having the office of pastor. It's a high calling because Scripture is very clear about divorce. And Scripture is very clear what it means to be a divorced person. Does it mean that God can't forgive sin? Of course not. But it means that there are grave consequences to the actions that we undertake. And so if that person was the cause, if that man was the cause of that divorce, I believe Scripture declares that that person should not hold the office of pastor. That's what the context states. And so as that is the case... We now see how high that standard is, because that's a lot of people in this world. That's a lot of marriages, more than 50%. Now, is grace sufficient? Yes. If it happened prior to Christ, you were under the, you're under grace. But if you were a Christian, and you're responsible for a divorce in your family, that is a tough one to get over. So be careful. Men, guard your hearts, guard your minds, guard your eyes, and keep yourself holy unto your wife if you want to be in ministry. It's that simple. Must be temperate. And that word temperate means exactly what it sounds like. It means moderation. It means limits. It means not excessive. It means not extreme. It means absence of extravagance. It means middle of the road. 
It means in everything, by the way. The, the way this is phrased, it doesn't just apply to money. It, it applies to everything. You know, it, it applies to things as simple as where you shop. We shop at Kohl's for clothes. We shop at Sam's Club for groceries. You know, quite frankly, it, it, those are moderate, temperate things. It doesn't mean that you can't go out and, you know, if you really find some coffee you like at some coffee shop, you can't have it. But as a general act of principle, I need to be down the middle. We need to not be prone to extremes. That's with everything that we do. I want to make sure that my life would be able to be modeled by you. Because if I show up and I'm wearing my Gucci shoes and I've got a big old honking diamond ring on my hand and I'm wearing $1,000 silk suits and I get here in a private, well, in our case, helicopter, and I got my private parking out there with my limo, and you, you go down and you find my house is worth $5 million, that's not temperate. It's not moderate. It can't be modeled, and it shouldn't be done as a pastor. I, I declare to you I'm ashamed of many men who claim to, to be speaking for God because of the way they live. It's a blight on the church. It's one of the things that non-Christians look at and go, why would I want to listen to that guy? He has nothing for me. He doesn't even live in reality. He, he, he spends more money than most people will make in their lifetime in a year. We need to be temperate. Under self-control. That seems, means to be sound. It actually has the connotation uh, of something that is right for its purpose. In other words, I, I should be able to have some common sense, some balanced judgment. Uh, those things that I do should be able to be looked at and inspected and, and dissected to a large degree and go, yeah, you know, that makes sense of a sound mind. You know, if I all of a sudden show up next week and, you know, and oh, by the way, you know, we're, we're going to coat the whole inside of the sanctuary in gold. And I want you all to give to that end. You guys are going to think I've lost my mind. You're not going to trust me with teaching God's word. You're going to look at this place and go, I don't want to be anywhere near it. We need to be thinking correctly. We shouldn't be prone to rash decisions, snap judgments, those types of things. need to have all of those things in, in their proper order. It has a sense of order here. Practical wisdom is another way to look at it. Must be respectable or well-behaved is the way it actually says there. It, it, we need to have some social graces. As I've shared with you many times, nobody gets won to Christ by, by screaming and yelling at them and calling them bad names. Nobody ever comes to Jesus because we simply point out people's faults. I've had an opportunity to run in some relatively uh, affluent and influential circles. And I, and I can tell you, you need to be able to control yourself in those situations and recognize that people are looking for an excuse to go, that guy's a nutcase. We need to be able to have that social grace of understanding the place that we stand in. It is an opportunity for us to let people see Jesus. We must be hospitable. You've got to be people persons. As I've shared with you before, ministry would be really easy if it weren't for people. 
You know, if I just ministered to chairs, if these were all empty, I could yell at them, I could do whatever I want. I could stack them up in nice little rows and put them in the corner. But ministry is about people. You need to be hospitable. It actually has the connotation of being actually likable and available. You have to be available. If you're not available, you can't be in leadership in the church. If you've got to punch a time clock, if you're off at four, find something else to do. You, you, you see, ministry is about people. And quite frankly, that applies to you too. Your friends' lives are not going to come unglued at four. They're going to come unglued at midnight. They're going to have a heart attack at one in the morning. Their, their child's going to get in a car accident at a very inconvenient time. You need to be available. I need to be available. The whole time I've been in ministry, and, and, and I, I only share these things with you so that you'll understand what I'm saying. I have not punched a clock ever in ministry. Ever. Never. My typical work week is between 50 and 60 hours. That's what it is. That's what it takes. It is important for you to understand that in leadership, you can't lead if you can't be found. Well, you know, he was off. So when you call me and it's after hours, would you please not say, I'm so sorry to call you. It is a privilege for me to receive your call. Okay? Just Just recognize that. I know you wouldn't call unless there was something major going on in your life. You don't need to apologize. It goes with the territory. It's what God would have me do. It's what he's called me to. I find it a joy. It's a pleasure to bear one another's burdens in ministry. It's a responsibility that we should be able to to not just look at and endure when people tell me, well, I'm, you know, I'm suffering in ministry, that's, that's insane. Is ministry difficult at times? Absolutely. But suffering? You can't use that word. If you're suffering, get out. You don't belong in ministry. It's a God-given talent. Next thing it says is able to teach. This one is kind of the, well, duh. It's the obvious. Yeah, able to teach. There's a certain amount of giftedness that that goes with that. But can I tell you that that is also something you have to apply yourself to. It doesn't, for most of us, does not come naturally. I spend a great deal of my time in God's Word. And I want to encourage you, that doesn't happen, you know, with one or two hours a week. It is a large part of what I do. And when people tell me, well, you know, I, I need to learn how to do this quicker because i got other things to do, then you need to find something else to do. There should be a desire to be able to teach. There should be a hunger for God's Word. And there should be a giftedness that exists in that person's life or perhaps they have not been called. When somebody after five years tells them, oh, you know, I just, I just can't quite get my Bible studies together, I would say to that person, you probably have not been called to be a teacher. It's not likely that that's, that's God's gift for you. It doesn't mean that you don't have one. It just means you don't have that one. 
Let's find out what it is that God does want to do with your life. It's a very, very, very heavy burden to carry, quite frankly. Because I'm going to stand before God someday and give an account for how I led you in understanding God's words. What Nehemiah 8.8 says. It says, he read distinctively from the book of the law and gave it sense and meaning so that they understood. It's my task. I take that very seriously. I want to do that well. And I want to pass it on. One of the things that I do is try and mentor other pastors who have the desire to come alongside of them. And that means, yes, critiquing their Bible studies. It means all kinds of crazy things. It means helping them understand what those passages may or may not say. Able to teach. Goes on to say, must not be drunk. It actually says, must not be a drunkard, is what it really says. In other words, have a personality that's such that wine matters more than people. It is very, very, very important that the moderation in my lifestyle should be able to be modeled by you. People always, you know, I have the I have the one side and the other side of this particular. Well, you mean I can't ever have a glass of wine? Scripture doesn't say that. And I'll tell you it doesn't say that. But I'll also in the same breath tell you, don't. Because most people, for the most part, don't handle that liberty very well. God's given you the liberty. Praise God. But be very careful. Because it's about this close from having a glass of wine with dinner to having a glass of wine two or three times in the evening, and you are drunk, and that is a sin. And so these things of moderation, when they come to the life of a pastor, that's why when people say, well, what do you do? I say, I don't. And the reason I don't is because I don't want to give one of you a liberty that might possibly harm you. Not because it's necessarily sin for me, but because it might become sin for you. I'm to be the example I'm to establish my life in such a way that you could model it. Not everybody can handle that liberty. Must not be a money monger. A love of money, the root of all kinds of evil, Scripture declares. doesn't mean it's evil in and of itself. It just means that the love of it. And that's everything from payroll to your house to cars to, to whatever. Again, the principle of moderation comes into play here. Must not be quarrelsome or violent. You, you see how these things are all linked together when you start thinking about it. It's moderation in everything. You can't be a hothead. You can't be somebody who's constantly just looking out after money. Again, it's not a job. If it was a job, then you go to the next place where you can make more money. Amen? If that's all it is to people, then they should go find something else to do. There's a lot of ways to make a lot more money. Can't be violent. Can't be quarrelsome. You see, if you're quarrelsome, in addition to all these other things, you can imagine how complicated it would get. Can I tell you that I get criticized all the time? Constantly. I constantly am criticized. I don't think there's, well, there's never a week that goes by. There's rarely a day that goes by that I don't get some type of negative comment. Well, you know you did this or you said that. If I were quarrelsome, none of y'all would have heads. (laughs) 
It'd just be, oh, really? You know. You have to look at it and go, you know what? Maybe the Lord has sent you somebody because they love you. And because maybe something you said was off base a little. Maybe something you did didn't quite speak the name of Jesus. You see a quarrelsome person, or more importantly, maybe an insecure person, has to be right all the time. I can tell you, there are times when I'm wrong. There are times when I look at, I was like, Lord, I can't believe I even said that. It wasn't intentional. Maybe I'm glancing down at my notes and I reverse two numbers or something. It happens every once in a while. But you can't take it as an offense if someone confronts you on something. You just have to listen with an open heart and say, Lord, help me to grow. Finally, as we wrap up this morning, gentle is obviously part of that, but a solid family leader, I think, is the, the, the image that's given here. My first ministry is my home. My first ministry is my home. These things which I hope I am living before you, these things which I endeavor to teach you, I must first live myself. The old axiom that practice makes perfect, well, guess where I get to practice being not quarrelsome? Guess where I get to practice being kind? Not a lover of money. I can't love money. I have two teenage sons. Whatever I have, they got it all already. It's... How about not being a drunkard? Got to practice that at home. Can you imagine? Well, you know, you should not be a drunkard. And then all of a sudden you find out in my home, you can come to my house, go through every closet if you want. You're not going to find any alcohol in our home. You see, I have to live it first. These things must apply to me. And see, I can't teach my own children to respect women and to love their wives as Christ loved the church if I don't do the same for my wife. Amen? I would be disqualified. The point is, the things that I have to teach you, you should be able to look at my life and say he first modeled them before he ever spoke about them from the pulpit. That's a tough calling. Because that means if you know something goes wrong at the Gill household, um, and you all know about it, I have to confess that as a fault to you. I have to make sure that you understand. It doesn't mean that things won't happen. But it means that I need to understand that my life needs to be blameless in that area. You should be able to model our home life. Because, and it gives us the reason, for someone who doesn't know how to manage his own household, why would you trust him with God's church? That's why when somebody tells me, and I, I've had to sit in on those pastoral boards and councils that have removed pastors. You know what? If you can't Manage your own home. If your own wife has left you because you're never home, if you will not raise your own children, if they're going completely sideways, and, and it's not because they're just sinners, it's because you never gave them any love, you never gave them any affection, you never shared the gospel with them, you, you did not spend time with them in the things of the Lord. If that happens, why would you ever entrust a church to somebody? That's tough. That means you all get to look at my private life. And in our world where basically we hide from each other, 
That's not a pleasant thought. That's not something anybody wakes up in the morning, boy, I hope I get just stuck in a fishbowl today and everybody gets to pick on me. But if I'm going to stand in the pulpit, I need to be able to do that because I don't want to fall into that snare of the devil. I don't want to be in that trap because pride is the trap there, folks. You see, all of these things, and as I wrap this up, all of these things can be glossed over. And all of these things I could pridefully say, well, you know, I've totally arrived in that area, and maybe put on a front for you for a couple of hours here on Sunday. But guess what? When you meet my wife, you're going to know whether I was telling you the truth or not. When you meet my children, you're going to know whether I was telling you the truth or not. When you examine what my neighbors have to say about me, you're going to know whether I was telling the truth. When you go into Jensen's, you'll know whether I was telling you the truth or not. And if I can't be trusted to tell you the truth about those things, you should never listen to me with the truth of God's Word. Because it's far more complex to communicate those truths than it is just the simple things of how I manage my own home. Do I live temperately? Do I live moderately? Am I loving? Am I kind? Am I not quarrelsome? You can ask my wife. In 34 years, we have never yelled at each other. Not once, not ever. Amen. You can test those things. Have I been an idiot? Yes. Did she have the right to whack me with a 4 by 4 Of course. I'm a guy. I'm dumb. But we live our lives by the principles in God's Word. If we do that, then notice the last thing. We have an influence on the people on the outside. Because the people on the outside are looking at what's going on on the inside. Amen? You have no greater witness than the witness you have to the world and how you live your lives. It does not matter what you say if you don't live your life according to God's Word. You can tell people all day, well, you know, I go to church eight times a week. I go twice on Sunday because I'm really holy. And you go home and you're screaming and yelling at your kids in the front yard and you're degrading your wife and, and you know, it, they're not going to believe a word you say. I pray that you'll hold me accountable to these things and I pray that you will attempt to live by these things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, may we settle for no less than these principles. Lord, would our lives be guided by them. And Father, I pray for me. Lord, I, I just ask you to help me in those areas of weakness. And Lord, I thank you for the, the gentle love that's been exhibited in this body as uh, you've caused me to grow over the years. Lord, I thank you for my pastor, Chuck, who's have been so gracious and so kind, so tender and gentle. And pray that, Lord, how we as the body of Christ would endeavor to keep each other before your throne of grace. And, Lord, as we find our brother or sister with a fault in these areas, that we who are spiritual, as your word says there in Galatians 6.1, would be quick to restore, lest we be tempted ourselves in the same way. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your standards, which are high. We pray that you'd bless us as we endeavor to meet them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and worship the Lord?
Thy hand.